welcome to Suede. This is Sarah Osteen, and I'm very pleased today to be talking to Tiana Dwight. Tiana is the wife of one of my husband's oldest friends, John Dwight, and I have been lucky to hang out with John and Tiana a number of times in the last couple of years, um, including one time when our husband's did swim across America and swam under the Golden Gate Bridge, I think, and we were trying to figure out where they were going to come out of the water and ended up driving around on the highway, I think, with my son, not in a car seat. <laughs> but, um, but I'm excited to be talking to Tiana today because we're going to be talking about the influence of, of essentially being a refugee and what that means. And Tiana has a, has a fascinating story to tell. And so, Tiana, thank you so much for, for talking to me today. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Let's go ahead and start at the beginning here. You know, I know you were born in Sarajevo, and can you just kind of jump right in and, and tell us the experience of moving from Sarajevo to, Sarajevo to yeah. Slovenia? So I grew up, I was born and grew up in Sarajevo, which is now Bosnia, then former Yugoslavia. And I had an amazing childhood. Uh, we spent our summers on the Croatian coast, um, winter skiing. We were middle-class family, but really able to enjoy life. And I never thought about it and kind of took it for granted, just like any kid would. Um, and I was 15 when one morning our city was surrounded um, and it was under um, siege. And what year was that? This was 92. And it was towards the end of the school year. Um, I was freshman in high school. And that's when the bombing and the snipers um, started shooting around the city. Um, and my parents were very afraid for our lives, uh, me and my sister's lives. So uh, unfortunately, my mom couldn't leave because her parents were getting pretty old and sick and she had to be around them. Um, and my dad wasn't allowed to leave. So um, what they were thinking is, you know, this is kind of a temporary thing. Let's just get our kids to safety. And we had the opportunity to basically, my sister and I get on a bus with um 20 or so other children and five moms, um, all connected to my dad's work. Um, and they basically shipped us off to Slovenia, thinking that it's going to be about a month and then we'll come back home and all live happily ever after. Um, yeah. And what that turned into is, you know, after arriving in Slovenia, we were waiting for things to settle down and waiting and waiting. And, you know, what we thought was a month turned into about, you know, two years of um, us being refugees before we arrived in California. How aware were you of the sort of bombings and the, the war that was happening around you in Sarajevo? I mean, was it like you could hear it or... Yeah, yeah. I remember um, walking to the center of town and there were um, military personnel with um, guns around us and um, kind of like 
jumping in front of us at, at times. And then at night, seeing the bombing and, um, you know, being very afraid. Uh, but I was one of the privileged refugees that had the option of getting out. So I didn't have to experience that for too long. It was, you know, not even a month probably of, of real fighting and, and real conflict before we were able to leave and, and my parents stayed behind. And how did you feel about getting on that bus to go? Um, I don't think I realized what was going on. Yeah. Oh, sorry, this is when I get... <laughs> well, so, I mean, I was... Uh, Honestly, as, as a kid, clueless about what's really going on, I was kind of excited to do something different for a month and go on vacation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I, yeah. I remember my grandma, who, who lived through World War II, crying. And I, I didn't get it. I didn't understand why she was crying. And I never saw her again. But she, she knew exactly what uh what was about to happen you think she had a sense that it was going to be longer than a month and that this was yeah i mean she she lived through a war at that point so yeah Ugh. but yeah. you do you remember your parents being hopeful or how did they treat it they they were worried but they were happy that you know there was a solution for us um to get out and, you know, they they wouldn't have to worry about us getting killed. Yeah. And and your dad had to stay because of military obligations, right? That's right. So when something like this happens, um, they actually don't allow, especially men that are capable of fighting to leave. And in a lot of cases, uh, kids are allowed to leave with uh, mothers, but, you know, not all. Um, So you need special permission to be able to leave the city. So tell me a little bit about what happened once you got to Slovenia. So we were um, in um, this, you know, what normally is a uh, vacation home uh, on top of a hill outside of Ljubljana that then turned into a, a refugee camp. Um, again, we were extremely lucky that we weren't in tents and, you know, in a really bad setup. We actually had rooms that we were sharing with um, other people. Um, and we were really well taken care of by UNICEF and various uh, organizations donating food and and clothing. And at that point, I was extremely dependent on that and had to be dependent and extremely thankful to have something like that available. Uh, We didn't have any other options. But, you know, after going through that for a couple of years or or any period of time, it's actually the worst feeling you have um, after having everything and being able to, you know, live on your own and be independent with your family being given things just makes you feel extremely helpless. And it's something that you don't want to have um, later on in your life and you want to walk away from as soon as you can. You're describing a very positive attitude. I, I can imagine also sort of having felt like 
why do I have to eat this UNICEF food or whatever it is? <laughs> I don't know. I, I think it's, there's another scenario there where you're sort of disdainful of it. It doesn't sound like you were felt like that at all. Yeah, it was actually, it was fun because we were getting uh, donations um, from UNICEF, from US, and it was like 1970s peanut butter and <laughs> military cookies, which tasted perfectly fine. So funny. It was kind of gross. <laughs> so, so it was funny. We all liked it and it saved us. Um, but yeah, now I, I don't really... Uh, pay attention to expiration dates as much so <laughs> good do. that's so great so was there was there an element of fun that you were like there with a whole bunch of kids yeah so it's really strange to say but as horrible as this experience was um i'm really thankful to have gone through that that early on in my life it did a couple of things it um, it really made me much more independent than um, I think I would have ever been if my life continued just as normal. Um, and it, it just made me appreciate every little thing that we have that I took for granted. Um, and, you know, for the rest of my life, I will appreciate um, the smallest things that I do have now compared to, you know, what I was wondering I would end up with during these times. Interesting that you were, even at that age, you were wondering how this was going to turn out. Yeah. I mean, there were periods, we, the, all the phone lines were down, so we couldn't talk to our parents. We could just see what was happening in Sarajevo or in Bosnia on, on TV. And we had no idea if we would be able to reunite with our parents where we would go we, we couldn't go to school during that period um, my friends and I at some point were walking around and going school to school begging principals to to let us at least sit in and listen to classes which were in Slovenian it's a, it's a slightly different language mm. um, and we were able to do that for a little while but it's not the same so you know you really get to appreciate even simple things like going to school um, and, and I was, I was dying to go on with normal life. I bet. So you had no contact with your parents during that time? Uh, every once in a while, um, they would find somebody with a radio and we would organize all the parents in Sarajevo and all the kids on this side would, you know, set a, time and a, and a place where we can talk. So they would all go up to my dad's um, company in Sarajevo and, uh, and we would all get on radio and, and talk to them. And that was about every six months or so. Do you remember what those phone calls were like? <laughs> uh, yes, it was amazing to talk to them um, after so long. Um, but, but it was also scary. One of those conversations was right after a huge bombing happened in Sarajevo. And we saw it on TV. I heard somebody uh, yelling out my mom's name, which is pretty common in Sarajevo. So, you know, it was kind of in the back of my mind, but I didn't think much about it. But then 
when we went for the, you know, radio conversation with my parents, only my dad showed up and he, you know, he said that my mom was sick or she had to go visit her parents, my grandparents or something along those lines. And I was sure that he was just giving us a story uh, and a cover up that luckily, you know, turned out not to be true. And then she was perfectly fine and safe. But, but I do remember that as a um, pretty scary moment. So interesting that you're doubting your dad, thinking that he's trying to protect yeah. you. So you were shopping for schools <laughs> um, uh, and and you occasionally got to sit in on classes yeah. or how did that work? Yeah, so eventually we found one high school that was willing to let a couple of us come in and sit in. Um, but that was a couple of months out of the, the two years. Explain what happened next, how you ended up in Los Gatos. Yeah, so while we were in Slovenia, my aunt and uncle with their two little kids were in Croatia as refugees as well. But they were um, staying with, with the rest of our family on the, on the coast. And our cousin in Los Gatos um, reached out to her and convinced her finally that, you know, this is not going to change. All of us were just waiting to go back home and nothing was really happening to enable that. So he finally convinced her to submit the paperwork and go through the process of um, applying for uh, refugee status in the U.S. So then my sister and I reunited with my aunt and uncle and our two cousins and uh, eventually arrived in um, San Francisco uh, and moved into a, a place in Los Gatos uh, in 94. And how, do you remember how you felt leaving Slovenia? Uh, mixed feelings. Uh, it, was, it was finally, you know, we had something figured out for the next chapter of our lives. So a little bit of excitement going to a new place, uh, going to U.S., but also, uh, you know, we still weren't sure if my parents could join eventually or not. And, you know, what would this turn into? Would we go back um, still after some time and meet up with them there? Or, you know, there, there were still a lot of unknowns. Well, that, that's so interesting. I didn't realize that a part of you thought, oh, maybe we'll go back. Yeah. Yeah, we, we weren't quite sure what would happen at that point. Right. Uh, so here you are um, arriving in San Francisco. And then what happened next? So I remember our, our cousins were waiting for us. Uh, our cousins from U.S. were waiting for us with the sign, Lily, um, who's my aunt, um, at, at the airport and, you know, drove us back to Los Gatos. And uh, they had our, our cousin Jim um, found an amazing apartment complex next to uh, an elementary school and a high school. And he had everything figured out and, and gave us bikes. Um, and I was dying to go to school. So pretty quickly, I, I got on that bike and my uh, uncle came with me and I just rode my bike to the high school and and try to find somebody in the office and ask, what do I need to do to join the school? 
So <laughs> my uncle's waiting for me at the bench on school grounds, smoking. <laughs> and somebody walks up to him and goes, um, sir, you, you can't smoke on <laughs> high school grounds. <laughs> so he got into a little bit of trouble. Oh, and uh, I found somebody and, you know, they enrolled me pretty quickly. And I was signing up for classes and I was signing up for like five different math classes. And they were looking at me like... I was crazy. Like, you know, what are you signing up for? Normally you sign up for one math class and all this fun stuff. Um, so that was, that was fun and a little bit of an adjustment. So why did you sign up for five math classes? <laughs> <laughs> Just like math. <laughs> so I did, I did see that um, school was, a lot more fun. And, and, you know, it took me a while to see that, but like, you know, back home, we would sign up for all kinds of, you know, challenge, or we wouldn't even sign up, but we would be given all kinds of challenging classes, physics and math. And, um, and, you know, here, as it turns out, you have geometry one year and a different math class the next year. And, and it, you know, changes and it mixes in with sports and fun stuff. Um, so, so eventually I kind of learned how the system works here. Which, which system do you think is more effective or better? Or are they not really comparable? I don't know. They're, they're very different. Yeah. Um, one is, you know, very focused on kind of serious learning and it's not supposed to be fun. Where here, you know, I, I do remember kind of coloring to learn uh chemistry and and you know different subjects and it was really fun (laughs) i was thinking i don't know why we don't do this (laughs) and my kids do that now and it makes perfect sense um but yeah that's not the experience i had growing up right but you were doing advanced calculus at you know age 12 (laughs) (laughs) Uh, so what was it like for you assimilating to an American high school having you know I know you were super eager to get to school but you also had been through a lot of trauma and were coming from another country so what, what was that like yeah so I was lucky that I found a really good small group of friends that were not the popular kids. I I was definitely an odd kid um, coming from the war and and kind of adjusting to all this stuff. But they were super supportive and and helped me kind of understand the high school culture and, you know, different things going on. But, you know, I definitely didn't connect to um, a lot of the fun aspects of high school for a while. Um, I didn't go to any of the dances or, you know, big parties, big school parties, or didn't connect to the popular crowd in, in any way. That was kind of bizarre to me for a while. It, it took a little while to really relax and start enjoying life. So it doesn't sound like you were wanting that per se, it just... Yeah, it just wasn't my priority yeah. at the time. It was just kind of a different world. So what 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 would you say was your priority? So one one of my closest um supporters during those years was my um high school history teacher. And I remember her taking me skiing and um helping me understand 
uh, certain aspects of uh, high school culture. Uh, in the middle of, of high school class, she, she asked everybody what um, their favorite numbers were. And, of course, I said 69. I was cringing right before you said that. I had a terrible feeling. <laughs> so she asked me to stay after class, and she explained to me what that no is. No way. <laughs> oh, my God. Wow. <laughs> I'm uncomfortable. That's awesome. Good for her. And that continued happening until until just a few years, <laughs> a few years ago. But, um, but yeah, I mean, she was such a uh, great supporter and almost another parent during that period, and and you know that and the small group of friends I had and the family around us um, that were doing everything they can to help us. Um, get used to this new life and, um, you know, really start enjoying it. Those were really my priorities. And, you know, it's hard to self-diagnose, but when you look back on that time, do you feel like you were an emotionally healthy, happy kid? Or was there some anxiety and understandable, you know, depression that, that came out. I'm not trying to lead you down that. I'm just wondering, like, when you look back as an adult, what's your, your what's your yeah. take on on your sort of mental health at that time? Yeah, so I, I think it actually. So once we kind of moved on to this next chapter of our lives, um, having that experience actually helped me enjoy everything I had and kind of leave all of that behind. So I actually, I I don't think I had depression um, or any kind of issues for a long time because you just kind of redirect your life to what do I need to do to move on? Um, How do I take more classes and get through school faster? Um, I was paying for myself through school. So you know, as soon as I had a chance and I was working throughout, but as soon as I had a chance to um, get a full-time job and, a, and, you know, start a career, I, I jumped into that and um, just really loved the experience of, um, you know, the the early years as well as then early career years with with all kinds of incredible people in tech and, and, you know, the support, I started working at eBay, um, and eventually moved to PayPal. And, you know, in that period, I didn't, I never had to talk about, um, being a refugee. I didn't think about it as much. Um, uh, you know, you just really just refocus on moving on and making the best out of, um, what's left of your life. This is one of the main reasons why I wanted to talk to you today, just because you have this incredibly positive outlook on life, whether or not it's, you know, dealing with a sick kid or, you know, any kind of those normal uh, challenges that come up in life, you always seem to navigate them with a, with a smile and a really positive way. And I just think about what you faced at this really formative time as a teenager. And I think it's amazing that that's how you came out. That's sort of how you've chosen to live your life and how you've done it. It's just, it's, it's awesome. And so, um, 
you know, thinking about your, uh, your, your time. So were you working in high school as well? Yes. Yeah. I started working as, as soon as I moved here. Just for extra money. Yeah. Yeah. It was really fun. I had part-time jobs, summer jobs, um, you know, any opportunity that came up, um, I, I took it and I, I loved that part of, um, living in, in the U.S. Yeah. You know, you can always find something. Yeah. I feel like you were one of the first hundred people at eBay or something. <laughs> <laughs> that up, I wasn't that lucky. It was post IPO and I was, I think, oh, yeah. 165 or something like that. Oh, but still but it was early. amazing. It was, you know, pretty early on. Um, we all knew each other. Just incredible, amazing group of people. Um, you know, pushing the limits on um, what, you know, tech world is capable of and, and, you know, how much you can deliver to the consumers and listen to them and just, um, you know, being driven by leaders and exposed to leaders that um, then changed my life even more. And, and I still look up to and, and will for the rest of my life. Sounds like there's been some formative people along the way, uh, but I just want to point out that you you sought them out. I mean, sure, you was lucky that you were living in a high tech area where there were job opportunities, but in the end, you 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 found those people. Yeah. Um. So here you are. Um. Uh, employee number three at eBay. <laughs> uh, you know, and moving on with your life. So how do, how do you, in today's world, as, as an adult, what would you say the impact is on you of, of this whole refugee experience? Yeah, so I think I use it um, to, to my advantage in different ways. Um, so, you know, when I first came here, and through those first couple of years, um, you know, and probably until recently, um, having that experience really helped me put things in perspective um, and really focus on what do I need to do to be independent, to be able to help my family and, and other people around me. And um, I have two kids now. What do I need to enable them Um you know, the, the day-to-day problems that we run into are difficult, yes, but when you put them in perspective, they're what we call first world problems. <laughs> Nothing comes yeah. close to, you know, what my life could have been. Um, so, so I really am able to use that experience to push when, when that is a priority. But then it also puts things in perspective when, kind of, you know, wealth and status and other things start taking over that are not a priority. Um, you know, it's, at some point you kind of balance out what is really the most important thing in life to you. And, and everybody has, uh, that, you know, their own set of priorities, but it also helped me step away from, you know, just going on to accumulate more wealth when, um, you know, maybe that's not the top priority right right now when my kids are um, seven and eight. Um, so, you know, it's been really great to look at 
day-to-day normal problems and just really think about them with that first first world problem lens and uh, and be be able to evaluate what's important and what's not yeah you know i'm i'm really interested in the concept of influence and it part of what i'm hearing you say is that you are able to influence yourself positively um around some of these issues. So whether or not it's how you think about wealth or how you think about uh, career success, you're, you're able to sort of, yeah, influence yourself or there's levers that you can pull Mm -hmm. to make yourself uh, look at that, those concepts clearly. Is is that accurate or yeah. You're a a raging success regardless of, you know, anybody, Um, never mind the fact that you, weren't really given a ton of opportunity when you first got here. Um, so how, when you think about refugee success, which is a complex concept, but how would you go about defining that, whether or not it's, it's for you or for, for anybody who's had to come to this country and make their way? Yeah. So I think it goes back to being in that um, position of helplessness and mm-hmm. and being forced to and you know grateful to get help, but most people I know from the the refugees um, from Bosnia to the current refugees, um, most of them after going through an experience like that, um, success really means becoming as independent as they can be and never living in that world again. And then the next part of that is being able to help somebody else. Um, It's amazing that I I saw that with my group of friends and family going through it, and I'm seeing the exact same thing with the current refugees. The helplessness? The, The drive to just move on and get a hold of their life. And, and be able to control their life, contribute themselves, support their families, help other people, and get back in the driver's seat and, and eliminate that dependence on others. Yeah, you see that story so many times mm-hmm. with refugees, and it's not it's not random. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So I'm I feel weird asking this question, but what? How do you think your experience is different, if at all, recognizing that you are white and have blonde hair and I think you have blue eyes? What Does does that make any difference in terms of your experience as a refugee or is it not really relevant? No, no, it makes a huge difference. Um, so when, when we arrived and... I, I think and very were, beautiful. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I should have added that. I think there were two plus million people displayed during the Bosnian War. Um, mm-hmm. And actually, a lot of them are Muslim, um, mm-hmm. but mostly white, um, probably 99% white. Um, I don't know anybody who was you know, not accepted or um, who was looked at as a threat in in any way. And that's, 
exactly why my heart was breaking when I started seeing the current refugee crisis and, you know, hearing really kind of valid questions and, and, you know, concerns based on not really knowing what happens and why people are escaping and why people are sending their kids when they're not able to leave. Um, before you go through that and, and understand the, the desperate situation that you're in to have to leave your home, leave everything you have, and basically start this journey of not knowing where you're going to end up, um, if you're going to survive the trip at all, um, and then you know get to a place where you're being questioned and being viewed as a threat because you look different. Um, I just I could not I, I could not understand um, why there's such a big difference now versus what was happening, you know, back with the Bosnian War, and and it breaks my heart that there's definitely a huge difference. Yeah, I mean, it, I don't think it takes away though from your experience, like you, just because it's easier for you to blend in, I guess. I just want to say, like, it doesn't mean yeah. that your experience is any any less than traumatic and well, and, and that's that's one of the main reasons I actually started talking about being a refugee again because. Uh, so John and I went to a refugee camp and and really became close with, um, you know, probably about 20 um, refugees from, from the camp we went to in Ofita. And they're exactly like us. They're exactly like me. They're exactly like my family. They're exactly like the people, um, you know, we were around during the Bosnian War they just want to get the safety. They just want to get their kids to safety and, and to a better life. And nobody wants to leave their home. Nobody wants to be a refugee. You're, you're only ready to make this trip and, and leave everything behind you. If you're, you know, extremely afraid for your life and for your future. Um, And, you know, we're all the same. We're, we're refugees. They're my re- refugee family, and they're going through the exact same things that we went through. So this was, was this two years ago that you volunteered at a refugee camp in Greece? Yes. Um, so John and I went to uh, a refugee camp in Greece that was a little bit smaller than the um, the rest of the refugee camps uh, in Greece at the time. It was probably about 100 residents. Um, and, and this was mostly refugees from Afghanistan. Um, but again, escaping the exact same things that the refugees from, from Syria are escaping, escaping Taliban, escaping, um, you know, bombing and, and shooting and, and, uh, you know, running for their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so John and I spent a week, um, at this camp through, a um, couple of organizations. Um, I got um, introduced to an organization called Sea of Solidarity, um, run by Maria Tran, uh, this amazing woman um, that worked at Facebook and was also a re- refugee at age three, I believe, from Vietnam. 
um, that started seeing the same um, issues with um, refugees coming into Greece, not being able to get help, um, not having, you know, the basic needs met from blankets to food to water um, and, and basic supplies and started Sea of Solidarity to, uh, to help the smaller organizations on the ground, helping people get off the boats as they're coming in. And then she connected us to um, uh, doyourpart.org. Um, and um, they are this uh, amazing woman. Lisa was running the camp and she's been kind of in and out of the camp since then. Um, and she really understood how um, how hard it is to, you know, let go of everything you have and just be given things and, and you know, sit in tents and and wait for to, food to be delivered to you. So she organized the camp as a community. And the people um, in the camp were not, you know, refugees, they were residents. And they were really part of that community from um, somebody being in charge of the kitchen, somebody um, being in charge of kind of running how um, the community functions. And at that time, they needed a chicken coop so that they can have their own chickens and provide for themselves. Um, so when John and I arrived, um, we were able to help with cleaning up the chicken coop area, but it was actually the residents um, that did most of the work. Um, and it was like 105 degrees outside, insanely hot. Um, it was uh, Ramadan, um, so they were fasting. So, so you know, they were on empty stomachs, extremely hot, working really hard trying to clean up this this area. And you know, that's the first you know couple of days of being introduced to these people. And you know, the more you talk to them, you learn that they're um, uh, designers and movie directors and doctors and, um, you know, some of them worked in tech, some of them worked as, as translators for the U.S. Army, um, you know, incredible and, and just incredibly strong people that um, are, you know, waiting to, to hear what's next. And, you know, at that point there, they were in these tents in 105 degrees um, with no answer around, you know, what's next and, and where can they go next? Um, we, uh, we spent about seven days there and we were able to, um, to raise money from friends in the U S and, and um, one thing that was happening is, um, there was a little kitchen built by uh, Maria and Peter, uh, Maria uh, Tran and, and Peter then run Sea of Solidarity. Um, but they, they only had a couple of pots and pans. So um, this community, and, and you know, we're pretty similar in Bosnia, is really focused on all the rituals around food. At least the one thing that they still had was this ability to cook for their family and provide for their family. And that was really something that they were enjoying. But 
and there was a lot of conflict around, well, who has the pot and who's, you know, who's going to have it next? And will I be able to food for, uh, to provide food for my family? So one day we just went straight to Ikea, bought a bunch of pots and pans and just basic supplies. And even just a little thing like that made a huge difference in eliminating these issues that were completely unnecessary. Um, and there, there were one or two babies born while we were there, one while we were there and, and one right after we left. And they wanted to celebrate and just have a party. So, you know, here they are with, with a bunch of cookies uh, donated by UNICEF. Um, From like 1985? <laughs> maybe, probably. <laughs> Planning for the party, all excited. And after we, you know, got pots and pans and some, you know, kids toys and things like that, um, we started talking to uh, some of the guys in the camp and, and a lot of them are musicians. So the last, you know, little bit of funds that we had, we went and bought a couple of instruments and they were so happy and had an amazing party out in the open in this camp with cookies on a side and everybody, you know, playing music and the kids dancing around. Um, one of the guys uh, in the camp, a young guy, always smiling, always extremely friendly, um, actually lost his leg um, on his way to Greece. Uh he was dancing all night. I mean, it was amazing to see the joy and the uh, simplicity, you know, of life at that point. Um, and what, you know, a couple of instruments and their um, amazing positive outlook in the middle of this horrible situation um, could do. So, you know, it, it was, it was an incredible experience and being able to share that with John was um probably the best um vacation you know experience i could ever have with with a spouse i i love this whole story and the 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 idea that they wanted to create some normalcy and pr- cook for their family and have parties and that you guys helped facilitate that which is so much more important than I, I don't know, than just raising funds, you know, that you were actually, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. And, and so why, I mean, this might seem obvious, but why, I guess, was it so important to do, to have that experience with John and why was it better than any, you know, fancy vacation that you could have gone on? <laughs> <laughs> so when I, when I started seeing what was happening, I, I felt extremely helpless and, and angry, you know, hearing the the concerns and the pushback uh, from Europe, from US, from the rest of the world. Um, and it, as much as we got a ton of help while, while I was a refugee, I do remember at times thinking, you know, does the world care? Does Is the world watching or is everybody just kind of moving on with their lives, not having time to be bothered with what's happening here? Um, and, and that was just crippling. Um, I, I had to get involved somehow. I couldn't stop 
you know, just trying to keep up with what's going on and, and, and watching the boats and then, you know, watching what was happening to people at that time. Um, and I saw uh, one of my friends uh, ended up going to, uh, to Greece, uh, to a place where the boats were stopping uh, Lesbos. And she's the one that connected me to, to Maria and Sea of Solidarity. Um, and I, I had to go. So, um, I, you know, part of what I went through, I had to um, go and do something about this and, and be able to help in some way. Um, so I, I brought it up to John, um, you know, not having high hopes that he would actually use our vacation, which we rarely had, um, for something like that. And, um, I think seeing me, you know, so crippled by what was going on, um, also made him understand how important this was to me. So, so he said, yes. Um, and we actually had, uh, our sabbaticals at the same time. So we had a month off to go on vacation, which we were planning to go to Croatia. So the plan was to leave our kids in Croatia with my parents and two of us um, go to Greece and spend the week at this refugee camp. Um, and I think he kind of understood from you know, from uh, media and, you know, reading various books about the Bosnian war and various wars and, and refugee stats and, and things like that. He, he kind of understood what I was talking about, but actually being there and, and meeting our friends and, you know, making these extremely close um, connections with, um, the, the current families going through, um, this incredible unknown hard period in, in their lives, um, and seeing, you know, him really understand and experience it himself was a completely different experience. And, and, you know, I, I saw that he finally really understood what people go through in, in these cases as refugees and, and why it's so hard and, and why you can't just read books and, you know, watch the latest news and think that you understand it. I guess, is it fair to say that you felt like he understood you a little bit better? Yeah. Yeah, I think um, it helped with that. I think it was also ex- extremely frustrating. You want to come and you want to solve everything. And again, it's, you know, it's really hard to come and try to help without, you know, just giving people things uh, and, and making them feel, you know, even more desperate. Like, I, I just want to do this myself. So I think, I hope we were able to connect and enable people without, you know, just showing up and, and giving them things and feeling better about it. Um, it, it is a very fine line between, um, you know, giving somebody a fish or teaching them to fish and, and kind of enabling them to, to keep going in their lives. It, it would make sense that they are really open to that and wanting that. 
Yeah. And it's a, it's a struggle that, you know, keeps, keeps going. Um, some of them have found permanent good homes and, you know, are now in a really good place, starting a, a new life with them, with their families and, um, you know, in, in a, in a great community. Um, some of them are still in search for that. And, you know, we did see families, um, paying smugglers and, um, hiding in the woods and, and trying to make it to the next country and going through even worse experiences, um, in other countries and then trying to move on again. And, you know, I completely understand why they would want to do that and, and get their kids to a better, safer, um, place with a, you know, better promise of, um, their future lives. So any thoughts for people who are listening to this around what you would recommend, like one of the best things you can do to help support refugees ever, whether or not they're already here in the U S or they're in transit some somewhere else. What? Um, so I would say mm-hmm. just kind of demystify the biggest thing I think is demystifying what a refugee really is. I mean, I'm a refugee. I know, you know, hundreds of people that are refugees that are just like you and me. Um, it could happen to anybody. I, you know, I, I don't want to freak people out, but it could happen to any of us. Um, and you don't, you don't wish for that. You don't plan for that. It just happens. Um, and especially, um, it's very different if you grew up in the slums or, you know, you, you grew up extremely poor and you see that that's definitely a problem, but it's a different kind of problem. Here you're talking about people that had everything, had perfectly normal lives, had careers, were able to take care of their kids and families and enjoy life, and then everything was taken away from them. Um, so just kind of demystifying what a refugee is, is a great start. Um, The other thing is to look for smaller organizations um, that are on the ground. So pay attention to what's happening. You know, we were extremely lucky to find Sea of Solidarity and Do Your Part um, that are very good at using whatever funds they have to... um, really provide the value and the, and the basic needs that people have um, in various refugee camps um, in Greece and, and around Europe. Um, the, the other thing is, you know, volunteering, but not everybody has the time or the resources for that, um, or just giving to any of the um, big known um, organizations. Thank you for those ideas. This is uh, the idea of demystifying it is something that everybody can do. It doesn't take any money and I, I, uh, you're, you're doing that every day. So thank you for that. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Tiana, I wish I could give you a big in-person hug, but I I really appreciate your honesty and thoughtfulness around this. And um, I just really appreciate you being willing to talk. Thank you for taking the time. 